I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the theme and contemplation that could be articulated as the question, who am I? Or equally expressed as, what is this? The Buddha in his remarkably wide-ranging body of teaching spoke of many qualities and capacities that we can cultivate and develop in the human heart and mind. Qualities that are wholesome and beneficial and lead towards greater well-being for us as human beings. And there are large volumes of books and lists of qualities of which, uh, some of which, many of which in fact we've touched upon and we've talked about and yet there are probably many, many more that we haven't specifically or directly addressed and yet within this range of qualities and capacities that we can develop that the Buddha spoke about and pointed to, he spoke about seven qualities that were really the foundations of awakening. And he spoke about mindfulness, which we've been practicing, being present and awake. He spoke about the quality of effort, of bringing energy, of engaging, of the, the quality of joy, of rapture, of a sense of uplift in the heart. He spoke about the power and value of, of calm, of steadiness, equally of Equanimity, the ability to handle and meet the challenges we encounter. And he spoke of investigation. Dhamma vichaya is the word he used to investigate the way things are. And he said that this quality of investigation was the, the proximate condition, the quality closest to the opening of our hearts the awakening that his teachings pointed to. And so I'd like to explore a little and reflect upon how this might be relevant for us. Spiritual practice can be understood in many ways. Many, through many lenses or frameworks and with validity in many of them, certainly that I've encountered. And one of the frameworks or ways we can look at what spiritual practice is essentially concerned with is a process of deep inquiry, of looking at our life and the nature of experience with a profound sense of curiosity and interest to understand, what is this? Who am I? What is most true about what's happening right here? And it requires that we begin with a, a kind of openness and honesty with ourselves, it also has an element of humility in it, in which we really recognize that 
we do not yet know all there is to know about this life. We do not yet know all there is to know about who and what this that we call ourselves is. So to be interested in this, to be engaged with this, to be drawn into this, is something powerful and something the Buddha invited us to be open to. And in our practice, we, we orient towards connecting with the actual experience that's happening, seeing how as we start to become closer to the immediacy of things, and we're less filtering our experience through thoughts about it, ideas about it, through memories of past and fantasies of future, we actually start to come closer to what's actually happening, to what's actually here. And as we feel more grounded, more connected, more present, this capacity for exploration, for beginning to investigate, starts to become both more available and more potent. Some years ago, I was sitting in meditation in a cool February morning, a frosty winter's day in Devon as it was, and at the end of my meditation I just opened my eyes and looked up and there, in front of me, on the windowsill, about, hmm, I don't know, I guess it was, you know, three or four metres away from me. It wasn't that big a room. And there was the window. I was at the other end of the room, but looking out in that direction. And there on the windowsill was a snail. And I was interested and curious. And, huh. You know, this first thing appearing after my meditation. And I started very quickly, and we're probably familiar with this, I think Leela was speaking about, how quickly the mind moves into thought. And my mind went, it's a snail. Huh, how lovely. And I thought, what's it doing here? How'd it get here? And I started wondering. And I thought, okay, well, I can see how it got here because the window's open, so it came in through the window. And the window was open because it had been... The paint had been peeling on it, and I was just remembering all this. The paint had been peeling, and so it got waterlogged, and it wouldn't close properly. So I'd taken a plane and trimmed off the swollen wood, and then I'd primed it and painted it. Then I couldn't close it because it would have stuck with the paint, so I left it open. And the paint was drying, hopefully. But the window was open. The snail had come in. I said, okay, that's how it got here. And why did it get here? What's it doing here? I thought, it's cold out there. It would probably die. I didn't remember seeing... Snails in the frosty weather, probably it would die out there. So it's come inside to keep warm, to stay alive. I thought, oh, what a good idea. And then I thought, it's not a good idea because there's nothing for it to eat in here. I started to get quite concerned. It's like, it's going to starve. There's no food for a snail in this room. And so I was worried and concerned. And as I was looking at it, I could see the, the delicate spiral markings on its shell. I could see those two little eyes on little stalks, beady little things waving around. And I was, I was kind of thinking, gosh, this is a real dilemma. 
It's, if I put it back outside, it'll freeze. If I leave it in here, it'll starve. What can I do? And then I thought, ah, oh, my neighbour's greenhouse. <laughs> and I wasn't a gardener, so I didn't really think too much about what my neighbour might think of that idea. But I was so happy. I thought, oh, resolved. Solve this concern. I know what to do. So I got up off my cushion. This had all taken probably two seconds at the most. It just went... And, but I was, I was really happy. And I reached out to the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving <laughs> from when I'd planed the window. And the moment in which I realised what was... As I reached towards it, suddenly, this whole construction burst. It was gone. This whole thing, this creature who I'd been concerned about, who I'd been happy to save or find a solution for, had never existed. For a moment, it was never actually there. And yet, in my experience, I've been grappling with its life and death and putting at risk my relationship with my neighbours without even knowing it. When we don't look carefully, we quickly jump to conclusions form views and start to act in accordance with those views based on often superficial or surface appearances or interpretations that don't actually stand up when we look more closely, more carefully at what's happening. So here, as we practice, we're being invited to begin to look more deeply, to start to see perhaps beyond or through the initial appearance of things. And this requires us to somehow Consciously or not necessarily entirely consciously sometimes, but nonetheless it happens to start to put down our habitual positioning of ourself in terms of familiarity and what we believe we already know. It's a very strong compulsion, tendency, habit or pattern, we could say, for most of us in terms of the activity of our minds and our sense of how we see the world or how we see ourselves, to look in terms of where it's familiar and known. And what, and in fact, what reinforces the way we already know things or the way we already see things. And we're not usually so keen to look to those places where we don't yet know so fully or deeply. There's a way in which, and it's kind of, kind of sad in a way in our culture that sometimes that's discouraged that sense of being interested or being curious it's a, it's a really natural quality and one sees it often in, in, in young children when they encounter something they haven't before and the classic for me is like seeing a small child encountering a beetle or something like that and it's just like looking at this what is this thing? what's going on here? how does it move? why does it move? You know, and then possibly you know, can I eat it? or I don't know or can I pull it in my ear? You know? so it might need some help a young child with a beetle but, um, but the sense of interest is palpable 
fascination, interest. It's palpable sometimes. And, and yet, as adults, it seems we lose that very easily, all too easily and sadly. And there's something, when I say sad about it, it's like we have this, this saying in, in English, and maybe there's something similar in other cultures and languages, that says, curiosity killed the cat. Have you heard that one? It's kind of like, it doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? Curiosity killed the cat. Uh, I know my cat, she gets into all sorts of places. It hasn't killed her yet, but you sometimes wonder why it is as a culture we've come to have a statement that suggests curiosity is likely to get you killed. Because that's what it's saying. Now, I was really, when I, I was doing a little bit of um, research as to where this came from um, on the internet not so long ago, and um, I didn't find out where it came from per se, apart from that obvious cats seem to like going into strange places and jumping into dark corners and all of that, looking, investigating things. But I found that actually the statement was slightly larger. The, or the, or the, 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 the proverb, I guess it would be, it was sort of from the Middle Ages at least. It certainly dates back into the you know, several hundred years before now. Which, and it actually was something more like, what, the full version was, curiosity killed the cat, and then the cat came back. I thought, oh, now I like it. <laughs> now I really like it. It's actually, it generates quite some curiosity, in fact. Well, how did that happen? Oh, mm. So, at the time when that phrase was developing in the Middle Ages, is where it, where it originated in some form, it seemed, um, there was also these maps of the world, which you may have seen copies of, you know, where there were the countries that were known, which was basically a very small chunk of the world that was kind of known, at least from a Eurocentric perspective, where the maps that I've seen were being drawn. They, you know, those, those bits with some, some of Europe and maybe a bit of the New World, and then around the edges, all those things, you know, here be dragons. It's like, we don't know what, that, that's New Zealand somewhere around there. There's no dragons in New Zealand, but it was obviously a scary place. You don't want to go there. And, of course, they didn't get there for quite a while. Um, but uh, coming from New Zealand, it's kind of interesting to see your particular corner of the world having disappeared off the edge of the map and been labelled, here be dragons. And it tells us something about our relationship to all of this. What it is for us to take the risk, to, to look a little more deeply, to let go perhaps the sense we have of believing that we know or imagining that we already know who we are. Imagining that we really know what this is. And of course this process of willingness to look, to explore, to really become curious and interested plays out in relationship to not just the, the sense of who am I, well I'm me aren't I, but also parts of our experience where we think I know what this is or I know about what's happening here. Often what we encounter in meditation is we start to soften and open as places within our experience start to present themselves to us. Now, <laughs> interestingly enough, they often present in ways that we find challenging. Not only, but the kind of territory I'm talking about, where some way our, our you could say, physiological, energetic, biological processes and systems have somehow organised into something that we find problematic or difficult. 
and we might talk about it as a as a holding or a blockage or a stuckness or a or a, or a deadness or a various things that often have some associational connotation for us of I don't want this to be here and if I can just find a way to get rid of it I'll be very happy to do so and we kind of stay away from those places because we don't really want to feel them or experience them we just want them to go and so it's like again we have some sense that we sort of know what this is even if we don't quite know why it is but we know and and what it is is something unwanted something unwelcome something problematic or something wrong even and yet interestingly if we can turn towards those places in our body that again as we start to pay attention what happens is our our capacity for leaving parts out which is remarkably well developed nonetheless starts to break down and the places we've left out start to show up for us and if we can actually turn towards them and say oh so what is this rather than oh i don't like it it's it's a it's a, a something that i don't like it's like a like a contraction or a holding and or it's it's a blockage and it's stopping me or it's it's kind of imprisoning me and we kind of feel in relationship to it and somehow oppressed by it as if it was something separate from us doing something to us if we can bring a sense of interest or curiosity just like oh what is this what's going on here so we're really interested in it rather than assuming something's gone wrong because one of the things that starts to show over time in practice is there's a kind of intelligence in the process. It's not always obvious how that intelligence works, but there's a kind of intelligence in the process that we start to be able to trust. And one of the ways we start to develop that trust is the places where we do look a little further, go a little deeper, touch a little more into some of the places that be where in a very kind of simple way we could say that's the bit we've decided there be dragons and if someone could just kill the dragons that'll be fine by me in terms of our experience to actually listen to our body which doesn't speak to us so conceptually it doesn't offer us a lot of certainties and it certainly doesn't tell us where this is going when we enter into and make contact with those places but what it can speak to us of is something is going on here that i need to understand and that by the sense of it being a problem it's telling me i haven't really understood what's going on so just as an example some years ago um I was in contact in, in my meditation quite regularly with a place of holding in my abdomen. It was quite tight and quite sore at times. And I started to play with that a little bit and just rather than just thinking, I wish it would relax and kind of get, give me a break, you know, it was more like, oh, okay, well, what's going on here? What's happening? And as I paid attention to what I noticed it was doing, if I did, if I, if I didn't resist it happening, it would make my body do this. And I felt into it and it was pulling and pulling and pulling. It was like, and I thought, well, I can't meditate doing this. I, you know, better sit up. And would, if I wouldn't resist it, it would just do this. And at some point, I just, don't know if you can still hear me, um, but I just let my body come right down like that. And what was interesting is once my body was right down and 
on the carpet in front of me, it stopped pulling. It's like there was nothing to pull against there. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. It's actually saying just, I kind of said, what's that? It's like collapse. And I was just sort of exploring it, like, what's going on here? What's happening here? And actually, at some point it occurred to me to ask, well, you know, what's needed here? It's a question some of you may have asked in relationship to your own process at times. So what's needed here? And feeling that, it was like, it was really clear. It was like, help. Now, I thought, that's really interesting. Because I'm not sure who's going to be able to help me with this. It's going on in here. But it was like, oh, actually, this is telling me something about me. Where the tendency is to always actually try and do things by myself. And this is part of me trying to always do things by myself. And something about just saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I need help. It was the beginning of a journey of understanding, which is still continuing, as journeys do, of, oh, there are places where I actually need to ask for help in my life. And this isn't actually something that's undermining me. It's actually telling me something I need to know. Now, that's just a, a version of human experience, of which there are many. But there are places that we encounter, and some of you have been speaking about them and exploring them. And the remarkable thing is, and it seems to be universal, that as we start to open and turn towards with a sense of interest and curiosity, without assuming that we know what this thing is, or that we, without assuming that it is a problem, per se, but just giving it the respect. Well, it's here. Let's see what this is. Let's see what happens if I give it some space, if I breathe with it a little bit, if I ask it what it needs, or various things we could do. What we see is it starts to open up. It starts to show us something, teach us something. Now, it doesn't always speak to us back in language. Help is one word we might hear our body express in some way. But it could equally be something else. It might be no. It might be something in us just trying to say, hey, no, or stop, or please. I don't know. It could be anything, really. But there's something about this quality of investigation, of curiosity, of interest that's really powerful. And so when we explore, when we are with our experience, bringing an immense degree of respect to it, as if we were to meet with someone who we didn't know so much about, we couldn't make so many assumptions about. It's like, what's this person about? What's going on here? What's needed here? Sometimes we need to stay close. Sometimes we need to back off. Sometimes we do exactly the opposite of what's really needed because we think we know, but we haven't really stayed with that question very long. And so it takes time to find our way with such things. But part of the reason that we don't easily do that is we're offering we're often operating from a very different perspective in relationship to our experience. Because the experience that arises for us is often habitually and unconsciously 
being picked up, held or taken as somehow a basis for defining who I am rather than as something which I need to look at and understand. And because we take the experience as somehow to be me, if what it seems to express or represent is something I don't want to be, or don't want to have, or don't want to feel, then we reject it and say, no, I don't want that, because I don't want to be that. So at one level I, I, I understood, oh, there's some place in here that's expressing something of weakness, and I don't want to be weakness, I certainly don't want to be weak. You know, I'm a bloke, after all, you can't be weak. And I was, oh, well, actually, but this bit seems to be. It's kind of saying, help, I'm, I'm giving up. And I was like, oh, okay. So the way we make an identity out of our experience stops us from actually seeing it clearly. And so much of what's significant, so much of the weight we give to what's happening in our experience... Although, of course, it's important to us, whether it's pleasant and pleasurable, delightful and desirable. We, we, we are interested in that, definitely. And we don't like it when it's unpleasant or difficult or scary in some way. Yeah, that has a certain significance for us. But actually, it's much more significant generally, much more powerful in terms of the experience and whether we're really open to it or up for it or not. What we're really grasping towards and pushing away is not just the level of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, but the way in which if we take this experience, we can use it to somehow enhance, uplift or inflate our sense of who we are, i.e. it makes me feel good or okay about myself. And the experiences that are most difficult, most scary, most unwanted are those that somehow lead me to a conclusion that's painful, that's not okay, like there's something wrong with me or there's something that needs fixing or there's something that's broken or bad. And these are tragic conclusions we form, deeply painful, that aren't actually based in the truth, but in an interpretation of the experience. To see our experience as either enhancing or threatening the sense of who we are that we'd like to be or wouldn't like to be. This is where experience has so much power over us. This is where we give it so much authority. And you may have recognized or noticed moments like that. It's really important and useful to pay attention to this identity-building process, this way in which we construct a conceiving, a believing of who I am based on what happens, based on the experiences. That sense of knowing who I am, even when it's an uncomfortable or painful and unwanted sense, gives us somehow some sense of security, some sense of something I can refer to. But it equally becomes a prison. It becomes a containing or a limiting or binding structure in which the, the potentiality of our life to continually open, unfold and reveal itself becomes subsumed beneath the weight of that sense of this is who I am. I'm like this and I'm not like that. I am one of these kinds of people and I'm not one of those kinds of people. When in fact if we look at our experience we see it's fluid. It doesn't ever, it doesn't ever exclusively back up one version of that story. 
or the other, or one of the, any of the myriad versions of the story of who we are. So notice where we're doing that. Notice if we're doing that. So maybe you're not. I don't know. I'm not assuming you are for sure. Um, but notice if there's a way in which you're starting to pick up experiences and use them as a reference for, oh, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm doing well, I'm great. You know, it's a good sitting. I'm a good meditator. I didn't take too much at lunchtime. I'm a good renunciate. I really followed through the sitting and the walking, the sitting and the staying present during my mealtime. Wow, yeah, I've got this continuity going on. Now, this is all in the world of meditation, the kind of things on a retreat that we say, yeah, these are what makes you a good guy or a good girl, it seems. And how we can pick them up with a sense of, ah, aren't I doing well? Or the opposite, of course, the negative or painful self-images. We have a bad sitting. People use this language often, a bad, what is a bad sitting? It's like you couldn't sit, you fell off the chair or the cushion. That would be a bad sitting in one sense, but... What we normally mean is, oh, I wasn't very easily able to be present, or I was assailed by difficult experiences that I didn't really want to have. It's not a bad sitting. It might be challenging, difficult, scary, but it's not bad. But because it doesn't fit in with the idea of who I think I want to be, or what I think I want to be able to do in meditation, we make it bad, and somehow we then make ourselves the failure at meditation. Or whatever, you know, we go into the lunch queue with the intention to be modest and we walk out with this plate buried in food, you know, and we work our way through it until we're groaning. And it's like, oh no, I've done it again. I do it regularly. You know, what's really interesting about these, and these, these are in a way perhaps simple and Maybe not so light examples. Of course, it can be something that runs very deep and very painfully for us as we review our life and look at all the things that maybe we would hope we could gather together to give ourselves a sense of an uplifted or a validated or an appreciated version of me. And at the same time, we're aware of all the things which if we turn towards them or list them, and sometimes we do in our minds, we bring them to mind, that, that actually confirm that we're actually a rather, you know, deficient or poor or tragically wrong version of a human being. But what's really interesting, if you look at that, if you see that, what, one thing, first of all, it's really important if you see that going on, to look with compassion upon oneself. Because we do this for a reason. We're trying to understand something that isn't actually the place and the way we're going to understand it, but we are trying at some level to understand something here. But to look at it, to see that actually with all of that process, we have to keep doing it. We can't totally believe any position we get to. Have you noticed that ever? We can't get to the point where now I'm sure I'm really great and just, oh, it's done, finished. Because the next moment if I mess up, I'm not great anymore. Really, you know? So no matter how well we do at giving ourselves this image or reinforcing, backing it up, at any moment it can fall apart when the next thing doesn't fit the picture. 
And interestingly, when the images are more negative or painful, what is often and almost inevitably going on is there's an actual, there's a sense of almost resisting the image. It's like it feels like it's true, but something is, is actually kind of fighting with it at the same time as we might be noticing or attending to the things that seem to back it up seem to reinforce it. It's like something in us doesn't actually land in it. There's something about the nature of experience that doesn't really back up any fixed image of who I am. It just doesn't do it. And so we have to keep looking to see, am I really like that? I remember speaking with someone who was working with a, with a real strong pattern of, of feeling something was wrong, something bad. And they would talk about waking up and having to figure out, what have I done that makes me bad? And it's like, you have to figure it out again every day. It's not like it's for sure. You have to figure it out. You have to keep reinforcing or proving it. And what that's saying is, there's no fundamental truth to it. Or else one wouldn't need, you know, I don't need to keep proving in a sense that this bell makes a sound like this. Because it does. It's just the sound. When you hit it, it makes that sound. I've never gotten into an argument with someone saying, but yeah, it's really like that, you know? It's like it's clear. That's how it is. But it's a very different, simple thing. The sense of who we are is something, or the way in which we construct and engage and struggle with that is something that's really useful to look at. To see these views that arise that define ourself or others, you know, by our experiences, our history, our roles, our patterns, our tendencies, our qualities. All of these things have their reality, their validity, and their importance. But when we start to say, I am this, or you are that, or he or she is that, as if somehow we can package it, fix it, and somehow park it, and say, that's it. Now I know, that's who they are, that's who I am. We've gone way beyond what's actually useful in those experiences. It's like, yes, there are things we need to learn about our vulnerabilities and the places where we get triggered or where we need to develop certain capacities or qualities or where we have certain qualities and capacities we can honour. Yeah, all of that's really important. But ultimately... We can't, we can't establish any fixed, steady, or reliable basis for an identity in those experiences. This is something the Buddha asked his followers to contemplate, to look at, to reflect on again and again and again. It's one of the fundamental kind of lenses of contemplation, of investigation, of curiosity in Dharma practice. It's like he would say, you know, so... Look at these experiences, these thoughts, these feelings, these sensations in your body, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch and contact that you experience. You know, that's the totality of our human experience. Sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thoughts. And what we call feelings are mixtures of those, of sensations in the body and thoughts in the mind. But there isn't something else than that. And then the Buddha would say, you know, so are these things in your control? Can you make them be the way you want them to be? And, you know, 
I'm sure if anyone has figured out how to do that here on the retreat, you could write a book, you'd get a lot of money for it. But I'm going to take a bit of a gamble here and guess that you haven't, because nobody has figured out how to control the experience. It's the nature of it is that it's not in our control. And so the Buddha would say, well, does it make sense to take this to be who you are if you can't determine how it happens and how it unfolds? Does that make any sense? And of course his followers who are wise would say no. But of course we haven't always got there. It's like at some level we, we take it to be who we are. And again, it's not to judge that, but to look at it, to see. Oh, what's going on here? What's going on here? So there's a value and an importance in the exploring, the investigating of all that kind of territory, material, we could say, that comes out of our life and our circumstances. And there's a lot of richness, a lot of well-being, of healing, of growth, and of wholesomeness that comes out of working in that territory skillfully. But it's not the basis for understanding who we are. And so, if we don't try to know who I am through all of that, if we don't try and answer the question, what is this? through simply listing, well, it's sights and sounds and smells and tastes and colours and thoughts. Because we see, if we just list, that's what it is, because that is what it is. Has any of you had an experience that wasn't one of those ever in your life? Let me know. You can tell me. I haven't. Sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts. That's what comes through this conscious mind and body. This human experience is that. And yet that somehow doesn't quite add up. And if it's not that, or if it's not defined by that, if it can't be contained just by that, then it really means we don't know. And we can't know through the sensory information the answers to perhaps the most fundamental question or questions. And contemplating in this way, we may start to find ourselves entering into a, a quality or a dimension of noble uncertainty, of just not being sure. It's not that we have to reject our ideas or what we've thought about who we are, but to just begin to question, to be a little less certain. And this quality of uncertainty, again, really important to be able to discern how different it is from what we also sometimes experience and might describe in a slightly similar way, in terms of at least the words we use, of, of, of doubt or of uncertainty. And there can be a kind of sceptical uncertainty or doubt that's kind of undermining, that's deflated, that doesn't have energy, that kind of is contracted and that kind of we lose enthusiasm when we're kind of you know, uncertain in that way don't quite know what to do or whether we can do it. There's a different quality of uncertainty that actually is full of vitality and that's expansive, that actually calls us forth in our 
in this in a very natural human interest to understand that's there, as I said, in young children very clearly. And continues within us, but sometimes just running a little deeper, needing to be accessed, to be brought forth into our lives and in our practice. So what is it to let go of our ideas of who we are? To perhaps contemplate or consider that we don't actually know the fundamental answer to that essential question. What is it to question deeply? Who am I? What is this? What is this? It's the entire practice within one of the main traditions of Korean Zen, the Son tradition, is to be engaging with the question, what is this, from a place of uncertainty? What is this? Who am I? Again, this question can be a whole practice in the, the much-loved and deeply respected saint of India of the 20th century, Ramana Maharshi. This was the practice he taught and he practiced, just deeply asking oneself, who am I? Who am I? And I remember once while practicing in India, a period of uh, exploration and Somehow I encountered this question. It just arose within me. And it was like cannons exploding in my heart, in my mind. It was like, who am I? Who am I? In a way that somehow it just, it seemed like it erased the mental activity of the mind. It's just like it just, just somehow the size of the question, the fullness of the question, the mind just stopped. It's just like, huh. And becomes fully engaged with that unknowing that is interested to know. And we can't answer such questions with our mind, with thinking, with conceiving, with language. The mind is humbled into silence, the thinking mind. And yet in that place, in that humility, in that openness, in that not knowing, it can be that our life responds. The deeper place of knowing starts to speak in a language we begin to hear. And we might start to sense or recognize or see in many different ways. In one way we might start to see or recognize what's happening. This process of life, something moving, flowing. We see how that which I was that was once a child is no longer. And I'm an adult of middle age now. And one day, probably, I'll be elderly if I live to that time of life. And we see that this body is moving, morphing from one shape and form into another. We see that the past experiences of thoughts and feelings, smells and tastes, all of that is gone. It's just gone. I can't make myself out of that because it's gone. And all the things that haven't yet come, I can't find them to make myself out of that either. Where does that leave me? Where does that leave the sense of, of beingness, of aliveness that is very clearly here and yet 
can't be defined by what's happening, by the events and the circumstances. So if we, if we look at a river, if we contemplate a river, what do we see? You know, the water is changing. It's not always the same. Sometimes the river is high and the water is muddy. Sometimes it's running clear or low. Sometimes there's various things floating in it and other times not. And what is the nature of a river? If we ask, who are you to a river? What is this? What would we say? Is it the water? Well, the water keeps changing. Is it the riverbed? Well, that changes too. And yet somehow the river is both those, yet defined by neither of them. It's like it's, it's something that's happening. It's alive, it's a dynamic thing, what we call a river. And we might see that the essential element of a river is this capacity to flow, this potentiality of movement. And that that movement isn't random, that the movement is to the ocean. And always, and only, towards the ocean. How? How does the water get back to the ocean? How does it do that? All we can say is that it does it unstoppably. Occasionally it gets diverted for a little while, but inevitably and unstoppably the water finds its way back to the ocean. And this life, likewise, as a river, is flowing, it's moving. The what's happening keeps changing. And yet, this existence flows unstoppably. And it seems like water, it flows from birth to death as in the movement of a river, from its source to its dissolution. And yet, if we look at the water, we see it begins in the ocean. We can say it begins anywhere, really. But if we take that as a beginning point, it, from the ocean into the air, from the air onto the land, from the land into the stream, from the stream into the river, from the river back to the ocean again, Round and round, and yet bound to none of those forms or expressions, none of those locations. The water itself is not separate from the ocean depths. It's not separate from the vapor in the sky. It's not river. It's not separate from the current in the river flowing. It's not separate from any of these things, and yet it's not bound to any of them either. It's not bound to any of them either. Our bodies, 90% water, moving in this life. Not separate from all of the things that we experience, all the conditions we encounter in our lives. Absolutely not. But nor bound in them. Or absolutely defined by them. We tend to kind of identify with the water. We tend to identify with the things that are happening in the flow of our life, in the movement of life. And when we take birth in that way, when we identify with what rises and passes, 
There's a becoming that takes place. This is the, the word the Buddha used to point to what happens that is really the crux of how suffering is constructed, the understanding of which is actually the heart of how suffering is transformed and dissolved. This process whereby we take hold of that which is moving. And by taking hold of it, we're bound to its death. And of course, as a result of this, we can live in so much fear. But imagine a wave on the ocean surface doing what waves do, which is rolling along. And sometimes it's probably a bit stormy on the surface of the ocean. Sometimes it's kind of tranquil. But the wave's just rolling along. And now imagine when the wave is rolling along. At some point, it catches a glimpse out there in the, in the distance of the shore. And there's the wave rolling towards the shore. And it sees what's happening to the other waves as they hit the shore. And they're crashing into the shore and disappearing. And the wave starts to think, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea. It was a carefree wave until this moment. And now it's kind of trying to, this thing doesn't go backwards. It only goes in that direction. And so the wave has no option but to go in this direction. And of course, at some point, it crashes into the shore. And the wave is gone. But the water? What happens to the water when the wave hits the shore? What happens to the water? It's unharmed. It was never in danger. So what might happen if we were to let go, maybe even just a little, maybe just a little more than that, to let go of our ideas and beliefs about who we are or who we are not, about what we are, about what we are not. Because those ideas are inevitably going to be partial and limited. Of course, it's useful to have some understanding about how we operate and what seems to go on within us. I'm not saying that that isn't really useful and important, but not to take that as somehow definitive of the totality of what it is that we are. But to see what might be possible, what might be discovered if we were to rest in simply seeing this life unfolding, not having to become what is revealed, but nor yet holding ourselves in any way apart from that, not taking anything to be ultimately who we are, but nor yet suggesting that anything is apart from or outside of that. Not becoming something or someone, nor becoming nothing or no one. And yet being really wholeheartedly here. In the very midst of this, we might start to sense that 
It is not I, it is not we who are moving through life on a journey between birth and death. But in fact it is life moving through this open space, this dynamic stillness, this vital aliveness that is open, that is free, and that life pours through unstoppably. To me, not this, nor that, nor not this, nor not that. Not apart from this and that, nor defined by it. we may come to know more deeply what is true, in which the question, who am I and what is this, is not so much answered as resolved, as the wave and the water dissolve back into the ocean. Quite naturally, So let's just sit quietly for a few moments. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to know ever more deeply the truth that stands at the heart of our interest to know who and what we are. And may we have the Courage to explore, to explore those places in our hearts and our processes that we turn away from. And the courage to open ourselves to the discoveries that lie beyond the conceiving mind, beyond the limited sense and view of self the vastness, the openness, 
the remarkable fullness and freshness of life for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.